The Pharisees confront Jesus because his disciples eat with unclean hands. Now everyone here was taught, I hope, to wash your hands before eating. To any little ones out there, let me make clear. No, you still have to wash your hands before sitting down at the table. But that's not what the Pharisees are talking about. The Pharisees were a popular group of Jewish religious teachers. They were not priests who offered sacrifices in the temple, nor did they have any official standing within Judaism at that time. But their teachings heavily influenced Jewish practice, both then and continuing to this day. The distinguishing feature of Pharisaical teaching was that they believed that the rituals associated with the practice of temple sacrifice and other priestly duties should be observed by the common people in their daily lives, hence the issue with the hand washing. In the Old Testament, certainly we can find many passages where the law commands ritual washing. One is for the priests before they offered sacrifices in the temple. The other was when someone or something touched something unclean, such as a sick person or a corpse or an animal that was unclean under the dietary laws of the Old Testament. But these situations were obviously limited to particular persons in particular situations. What the Pharisees did, however, was to multiply this concern with ritual cleanliness and impose it as an obligation on every person before every meal. And this wasn't just rinse your hands with soap and water and clean them with a clean towel. The pharisaical form of washing was an elaborate practice of using a special wash basin that had been properly blessed, then making sure the water in the basin was ritually clean, and then making sure the basin itself had been blessed, and then washing each hand three times in alternating succession while saying a particular prayer and then having someone roll up the sleeves of your robe so that you could wash your arms up to your elbow and then dry them with a special cloth, then dispose of the water down a particular drain, and so on and so forth. The Pharisees, of course, believed that they had a good reason for doing this. They believed it was a way for the common Jews to incorporate into their lives some of the practices of the temple ritual. Because it's important to remember that many of the common Jews at that time felt cut off and alienated from the temple practices, which were dominated by the more elitist Sadducees and the priests. So the Pharisees were offering the people practices that they could do to foster religion in their everyday lives, not just when they could gain admission into the temple. There's something good to be said for that. But it caused problems as well, because too much of a good thing is no longer a good thing. One of the problems was that the Pharisees multiplied these required rituals so elaborately that they became a burden rather than an aid to holiness. It's one thing to say that if you touched an unclean thing, such as a pig or a dead body, that you should ritually wash yourself. How often, after all, does that happen? But it's quite another thing to say that just because you walk through the marketplace that you were, ipso facto, unclean. Similarly, it was one thing for the Pharisees themselves to do these things. They lived a leisured life of study so that they knew all of the rules and had access to the blessed items and the assistance that you needed to perform these elaborate rituals before every meal. But for the common folk who were farmers or fishermen or merchants, these became a tedious, draining practice every time they wanted to sit down and have something to eat. 
keeping many of the dietary laws and practices of the Old Testament that God specified were often challenging enough. But here were the Pharisees, taking it upon themselves to add to these ad infinitum. Fine for them, but difficult for their followers. That's why Jesus says of the Pharisees, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on people's shoulders, but they will not lift a finger to help them. One of the effects of this multiplication of rules and procedures was that it tended to conflate holiness with practice. Since the practices were considered the route to holiness, the natural tendency was to believe that those who kept the practices most perfectly were the most holy. But in fact, that might have just been a reflection of their intellectual ability to assimilate the teaching, along with having the time and the resources to organize their lives around observing these elaborate rules. There was also a tendency over time for the practice of the rules to become so fixated that it was lost what the concern of the rule was originally intended to foster. Modern Orthodox Judaism is essentially descended from the Pharisees. I had an Orthodox Jewish friend, a fellow lawyer, who said to me that Judaism, as he practiced it, was essentially a bottom-up religion. Just obey the rules. Sure, he said, rabbinical scholars love to study the rules and theorize about why they are the way they are. But ultimately, he said, the rules are simply meant to be obeyed apart from any understanding. Different branches of Orthodox Judaism may disagree about what rules or practices to follow, but ultimately they agree that a rule itself is simply meant to be followed. That's why modern Judaism, unlike Christianity, tends to downplay the significance of the distinction between the moral laws and the other 603 mitzvah or commandments in the Old Testament. At the risk of oversimplifying their views, they tend towards the idea that all commandments, not just the moral commandments, such as those contained in the Ten Commandments, have equal weight. Plus, it's simply the case that whenever a set of rules becomes unnecessarily complex or formulaic, it simply becomes a facade, and that only benefits lawyers and charlatans. That's why when Jesus is confronted elsewhere in the Gospels with the question of which command is the greatest, he responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Jesus is not dismissing all laws and commands, but he is suggesting that the lens through which we have to understand and obey the law is through love, not mere obedience. Charity must be the animating principle of the law. This is true both of the Mosaic law, which Jesus himself still observed during his earthly ministry, except when the fact of his incarnation abrogated certain things then and there, as well as the law of the new covenant, to which we as Christians are inheritors. The greatest of these is love, as St. Paul said. Rules and practices are not in themselves bad. We see in the first reading that the Lord says, Now, Israel, hear the statutes and decrees which I am teaching you to observe. As Christians, keepers of the new covenant, we don't observe many of the laws and rituals of the Old Testament, those which were ceremonial and provisional in nature. 
But we do observe the rules that are handed down by Holy Mother Church in her wisdom that are meant to foster holiness and the practice of charity. And these rules, despite what some people might think, are actually fairly simple. Or if they are sometimes complex, it's only because the situations that they are intended to govern are actually complex. No one delights in complex rules simply for their own sake. Some critics of the church try to cite the supposed complexity of the rules and rubrics for the liturgy and the sacraments as something that might have a pharisaical edge to it. But again, unlike with the Pharisees, the responsibility for knowing the rubrics and the nuances of the liturgy is not imposed upon the average believer. The actual execution of the liturgy is properly the concern of priests and liturgists who are trained to deal with it. So that's not a fair comparison. Another thing to note is that our lectionary omitted a key passage from Mark's actual text. In line 8, which we did read, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you disregard God's commandments but cling to human tradition. But then omitted was the following passage where Jesus continues, for Moses said, honor your mother and father, and whoever curses father or mother shall die. Yet you say, if a person says to father or mother, any support you might have had from me is korban, meaning dedicated to God, you allow him to do nothing more for his father or his mother. You nullify the word of God in favor of your tradition that you have handed on, and you do many such things. Many people read this passage to suggest that Jesus is exalting adherence to scripture over adherence to tradition. Yet, of course, our Catholic faith teaches that God's revelation is contained in both scripture and tradition. But we see that Jesus criticizes those who would neglect to financially support their parents. Yet nowhere in scripture is it said that someone has an obligation to financially support their aged parents. Now, certainly we know that the fourth commandment is honor your father and mother. But honoring is not the same thing as financially supporting. The duty to support parents financially was itself a tradition, meaning to the Jews an oral tradition not specifically contained in Scripture. It was an expanded interpretation and application of the fourth commandment. What the Pharisees taught was that a person could evade this obligation to support one's parents by dedicating the money to the temple. But there were legal mechanisms by which one could dedicate their money in this way, but still have access to it. Perhaps something like what we would call a living trust, where someone does not legally own an asset or a sum of money, but is nonetheless still the beneficiary of it. So Jesus is not criticizing tradition. He is criticizing a bad tradition, one that contravenes genuine love for one's parents. What Jesus strives to uphold is legitimate tradition, one that is rooted in the fourth commandment and seeks to fulfill it, not narrowly, but in spirit and truth derived from charity. St. James commands us, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Having faith is not merely intellectual assent to the propositions of the Christian faith. It means having a relationship with the triune God, the God of love who became one like us in Christ Jesus. That means that we must live out our faith, and that will mean following the moral law to avoid evil and following the law of love to do good. So too, our faith will mean that sometimes we have to follow 
certain rules and procedures. But we trust in Holy Mother Church that these rules are not heavy burdens for their own sake, but loving guides to keep us pure and undefiled, not in the eyes of men, but before the Lord.